Steve Mursky here with part two of our talk with Graham Farmelo, author of Churchill's Bomb. In terms of the, the effort to separate the uranium, I mean, it's a brute force kind of uh, thing. You just If you just do it long enough and make yeah. the separation tubes big enough and use enough uranium, you can do it. How, how long? I mean, the idea is that the uranium uh, isotopes are a slightly different weight. That's right. And when you vaporize them, you, one will travel down the tube slightly further than the other. That's right. And that's how you can separate them. But how long were the tubes that, uh, oh, they, 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 they were, went they on were, for? They were, they were, they were, I can't tell you the exact size, but this was a, it's not, it's not even thinkable now because you'd see them from aerial satellites. Right, right. I mean, they had, they were building whole towns to right. do this. I Just mean, to I th- separate out the uranium, I I know. And as you rightly yeah. say, it was, it was absolutely brute force. And, uh, it, 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 it was, a, well, as I said, I'm, I'm lost for words. It was to, to produce the amount of, uh, fissile, uh, um, Uranium and also plutonium. America definitely took the lead on that, right? Because it, it turned out it was a, a, you needed less of that stuff, that stuff, that mm-hmm. particular chemical element. Americans were were were, were, t- uh, were were quickly took the lead in developing plutonium weapons so that they could uh, had enough uh, uh, fissile material to build uh, a small number of nuclear bombs right at the end, as it turned out, of of of, uh, of, of the war. And that was uh, in its macabre way. It was a complete triumph for uh, Oppenheimer, but also, let's be clear, for uh, for General Groves, who I don't think I would have got on particularly well with, not that that matters. Uh, I suspect he's a very, very tough guy to work with. But it was an absolutely phenomenal planning achievement to have got that, got those weapons uh, ready. In fact, they had what they had, the Trinity test, Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, they they were uh, able to give the president... uh, the uh, the results of the Trinity test just in time for Potsdam, which is when um, uh, Harry Truman informed um, Stalin that the nuclear bomb had been uh, was ready. And of course, uh, Stalin was was a really great actor there. Uh, he, he said, "Oh, really?" You know, uh, and of course, he'd been briefed on this for years. He'd been getting briefings from London, which would have made Churchill blanche. You know. Um, but as I, as I say, uh, it, the the outcome is a is really a quite a I, I think for most people a very sad one, because uh, uh, we'll, people will never agree about nuclear weapons in the right. sense that some people say that the you know, the earth, other people will say that it's it's given us a long standing peace. Uh, but whatever you think about it, a colossal amount of uh, of, of wasted effort was put in built, building up these ever larger larger arsenals when perhaps a more imaginative approach would have been more productive we have to bear in mind again we we know that good people will differ on this uh but i I think it's fair to say that as uh, i mean anyone but i think with any sensibility we think it's an appalling thing to wipe out tens of thousands of people but one has to bear in mind that a comparable number of people were killed in one night's firebombing of tokyo and Dresden yeah. as well, I believe. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. absolutely fair point. And the people then, uh, at that, uh, people then at that time, you can look at George Orwell, my own mother still alive, right, will say the relief mm-hmm. that they had because the war was over, right? Now, there's all sorts of perspectives you can take on that. I said we just have to, as Paul would have appreciated this, uh, there's, there's no, a unique way of looking at this uh, at this thing, but it, it's a it, it was a it, a huge mo- a momentous tale of where scientists 
and politicians had to come together. And it's worth think, thinking, I think, that uh, of, of how strange this was, that the most advanced scientists in one field, seen as a very, very recondite area, came together with scientists. It's almost like, if you like, today's string theorists were suddenly finding themselves working with uh, with, um, with with Obama, David Cameron, and Putin, and what have you, right? right? It's, it, it's really, a, it's like something out of science fiction. Yeah. I think it's unprecedented to, to have such a large scale uh, working working together. Going back to that point about how the public before the war had read, uh, had seen plays on Broadway in London, wing, uh, Wings Over Europe. They read uh, books by people like Harold Nicholson, big selling books by uh, Priest, uh, by uh, J.B. Priestley, big selling book in the United States in like 1938, right, where people were talking about nuclear weapons, mm-hmm. right? And the physicists, it has to be said, the physicists were poo-pooing this. Most of all, the the greatest nuclear physicist probably of them all, Ernest Rutherford, you know, the classic nuclear skeptic, you know, you're talking about moonshine, uh, well, the idea that you could actually make a bomb and you could, you could tap this uh, nuclear energy. And then it all goes quiet in the war. Next thing they do, they read the newspaper and a nuclear bomb's been built. Mm. You, 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 you can understand this. <laughs> the, yeah. the public uh, disorientated, uh, how disorientated they were by this, you know, because in a sense, the H.G. Wellses and the Priestleys and the, uh, the, play, uh, the poets and the writers were, had, had forewarned people yeah. about this, yep. you know? Um, what was, what, when you wrote the book, when you did the research for the book, mm. what really jumped out at you as something you didn't know, didn't expect? Well, there are several, uh, there are several anecdotes, uh, that, uh, that caught me by surprise. I must say the, the one that tickles me most was this. And, and let me get very quick bit of background that Churchill is often seen as a kind of scientific illiterate by mm-hmm. people, but he was seen by people in his uh, cabinet as people because he knows nothing about science. He just relies on Lindemann, right? Had no interest at all in basic science. So I came across this, uh, report. And, and I did quite a bit of research uh, on it, where in March 1933, Churchill chaired a discussion about the modern discoveries in nuclear physics. This is the first artificial splitting of the atom, the discovery of the neutron, right, and the cosmic ray showers, uh, which uh, which gave a beautifully vivid uh, picture of, uh, of antimatter freshly discovered in the United States. Churchill was talking really quite lucidly in, in, in his witty way right, about these discoveries. He had just published 50 Years Hence, where he was looking forward to nuclear weapons. So it's astounding to me that this this writer, who is so literary in, uh, right, and so unscientific, allegedly, was in fact on top of this this stuff in the in the 1930s. And I I, I remain an Act deeply admiring of his breadth of interest, you know, uh, uh, and his far-sightedness. To me, as a nuclear visionary, he was far greater as a journalist than he was uh, as, a, as a politician. Mm-hmm. One other uh, po- uh, point that, that fascinated me was that Churchill, in, I think it was 1947, he actually advocated, when he was talking to Mackenzie Kit McKing, the Canadian uh, leader, uh, a preemptive strike on the Soviet Union. Hmm. That was the high point of his bellicosity, so to speak. He was deeply, deeply troubled 
by uh, by Stalin's what, what Churchill saw as Stalin's belligerency uh, in uh, particularly in, uh, uh, in 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 Eastern in Eastern Europe. Events quickly took over. The Soviets got the bomb. They got then got the H bomb, which is a super duper version of the uh, atomic bomb. And then in 1954, Churchill had this sort of Damascene moment when he read. The, uh, of the appalling, unutterably appalling destructiveness of the hydrogen bomb. In a report he read in the Manchester Guide, we've got a report, we, we know someone that actually saw him read that newspaper, mm. right? And he realized, so to speak, the game was up. This was, this was ridiculous, you know. The, both sides could absolutely smash each other to bits. And he saw in this an imperative to end the Cold War. Right? That he 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 felt we, he had to take a lead in this, and that's what made him a uh, a pioneer of détente right at the end of his career mm-hmm. when he was urging uh, Eisenhower and he was urging the uh, Soviet uh, leaders Stalin Stalin died in 1953 to come together to avoid the what he saw as a as a likely uh, cataclysm. That wasn't successful. It was undoubtedly a failure of his, but. Historians disagree on this, but I personally find it actually rather thrilling that someone of that age, right, 80 years old, 1954, mm-hmm. right, uh, could still, you know, be imaginative, right, way after the, it would have been, it would have been great if he'd been more imaginative in, in, the, in the, the war, but he still was taking, uh, imaginative action about, about nuclear weapons. And you know, Steve, this, pe- uh, people might say, well, you know, uh, yeah, he, all right. He was, he had to be involved in, the, uh, the, the Second World War. It's inter- it's curiosity that he was involved in the 1930s. Afterwards, he wouldn't have given, given a damn about it. That's not true. After he left office, he was kept briefed on Britain's nuclear arrangements. Mm. Uh, he visited Britain's nuclear research establishment, uh, in, in Harwell. And believe it or not, he participated in a nuclear experiment when he was aged 80. What did he do? Uh, well, Sir John Cockcroft, one of the uh, uh, the two guys who first artificially split the atom, took him to this neutron scattering experiment, and uh, uh, Ch- Churchill uh, was 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 being uh, briefed by Cockcroft and others, and he was the person who turned off this neutron beam. So it's, it was an absolutely minimal involvement, mm-hmm. but the point was he was actually in there with with equipment, you know, aged eighty. You know, mm-hmm. and he he was reading Neville Shute on the beach, right? Mm-hmm. He was he, he. This was his obsession right to the end, right? And for me, the abiding fascination of this story is that he was aware of it so early. Mm-hmm. And uh, politicians, they say, never will come out and say, you know, I screwed up or I got this wrong. But I I would dearly love to know. Whether he ever thought about tracing those steps, I think, as I speculate in my book, that he it must have dawned on him when he gave his great speech on the first of March, nineteen fifty-five, which was, by all accounts, a really great speech. Even people that opposed him, and this was on the Britain's acquisition of the hydrogen bomb. When he looked back on fifty years hence, he looked back on that article, and he frankly was boasting that he he and Lindemann had been anticipating events. Mm-hmm. Right, and yet nobody sought to ask. Well, if you were doing that in 1931, why weren't we better prepared? Right. But over, overall, I would say it's. A, I would say that Churchill is is a more impressive figure after this. It's easy to be critical, you know, from the vantage point we're in now. Right. 
Uh, but I, 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 I think that uh, it's a remarkable story of how uh, how a, a, a politician can know about a science early and still not be able to handle it as effectively as one might hope mm-hmm. when it when it when when it comes to actually dealing with things. Why did you write this book? <laughs> I was always, I've long been intrigued by the thought of all these nuclear physicists and theoretical physicists suddenly being swept away from their laboratories, away from all these abstractions and the subnuclear world, just ripped away from their, uh, from their laboratories, from their desks and easels, into the completely unfamiliar world of politics with secrecy then prevailing rather than the openness that everyone wants to see. And that's what caught my imagination. And I knew that Churchill was involved in this. What I never expected, never expected, was to find that Churchill was much more involved in science than, as far as I know, anyone really had had realised. And that's what I think makes this such a rich story. And I I did not know that when I started. So you could call it a lot of luck. Hmm. Uh, You spent the summer at Princeton Mm. at the Institute for Advanced Study. Is that to do research on your next book? It is. It is. Uh, 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 Thinking about my next book is so tentative that even you, Steve, shall not know uh, its subject. But I shall be very pleased (laughs) in due course to come and talk about it with you. It does not involve Winston Churchill. I'll give you that. (laughs) Well, we hope uh, we hope to see you again in maybe two years. More like three, probably. Yeah, but it won't be five and a half. I've done two five and a half year books. And I think I think I, I a shorter one is due this time. Well, Dirac and Churchill are rather large subjects. They are. Ah, good. It's a good link on that anecdote, actually. Mm-hmm. There's a good link there. In 1970, uh, uh, excuse me, I beg your pardon, 1972, mm-hmm. when Dirac's uh, 70th birthday was being celebrated by people like Heisenberg and Yang and all these great people, right, were ce- celebrating his birthday, C.P. Snow, two cultures guy, right. stood up and said, we are in the presence of the greatest living Englishman, and nobody demurred, right? And, of course, the reason why he was able to say that was that Churchill had, had died yeah. in 1965. Uh, yeah. That's right. So you could say, right, by uh, by C.P. Snow's rather peculiar way of looking at the world, that I've looked at, uh, at the two of the century's greatest Englishmen. Very good. Have you seen the opera, Dr. Atomic? No. Couldn't get tickets. I was uh. away. Have you seen it? I saw a broadcast of it on television. Ah. And, uh, you know, after watching this, I think you'd just find it fascinating. Yeah. Whether you'd think it's a great opera, I can't say, but I think you'd find it fascinating. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yes, I've heard, I've, I've, I've heard people that really like that. I mean, there's no doubt that, uh, that, uh, Oppenheim is a, is an operatic figure. I mean, for lots of reasons. I mean, uh, you know. I mean, that's why there's so many biographies of uh, of him. Now, they probably will continue to be. So. He wasn't the world's greatest scientist, but that said, he, he to grows his credit, mm-hmm. grows. I saw the potential which hardly anyone else, as far as I know, saw, and found a really great scientific leader of that project. And that was an inspirational piece of leadership on Groves's part. Mm-hmm. Oppenheimer, not the world's greatest physicist, but the world's greatest 
administrator yeah. of a gigantic physics project. Yeah, well, of the physics of it. Remember, it was Groves who did. Yeah, it's an important distinction because uh, but Oppenheimer, he was doing the science of it. Right? That is not to belittle his contribution in any way. But you know, you have to bear in mind that Groves is the master mastermind who pulled the whole thing together. And let me say, when I say he's not the world's greatest physicist, I don't. I don't mean he was in any way a poor physicist. I'm simply saying he wasn't at in at the same level as your Einsteins and your Dirac's, and he knew that. I personally believe, uh, for what it's worth, that uh, that he knew he had he was had immaculate taste. Oppenheimer, he knew who the best people were. Mm-hmm. He knew what great physics was, and he also knew he wasn't quite in that league. But he also was confident enough to try his hand at this scientific leadership, and that made him one of the greats. Reminds me of uh, one of the Supreme Court justices said after meeting FDR, after he had just been elected, I believe, uh, he does not have a first-rate intellect, mm. but he does have a first-rate temperament. Yes. Yeah. Churchill hugely re- revered uh, FDR. And I have to say, I was, in ter- just in terms of representing his country, I was, I've been very impressed with FDR. I wouldn't, I would have found it totally frustrating to have dealt with him and I think Churchill often did mm-hmm. but uh, an absolute master politician I mean you and you have to he knew far less about science than Churchill did quite plainly right. and we, right, he did a couple of courses at Harvard in uh, in geology or whatever right. it was yeah, yeah. and it, it was you, know, you would never see him chairing a course on the uh, on new discoveries in nuclear he had no Lindemann but the decisiveness with which he went after the bomb with which he appointed uh, uh, Veneva Bush, for example, you know, who, uh, uh, who came, came in to kind of putch and to, uh, set up this amazing organization of American science. That was really good, impressive leadership. And Leo Szilard famously goes to the White House with a letter from Einstein mm. for FDR, begging him to initiate this mm. project mm-hmm. to make an atomic bomb. Was that indeed... Uh, a, a, a crucial event in FDR's uh, decision making. It was important. I don't. I, I personally think that the understanding of how to make a bomb in crude terms that impetus was much more important than the Einstein in, mm-hmm. uh, initiative. I'm not saying Einstein issue was unimportant, but the, uh, what, what was so critical and missed out of some very, really quite good histories is that uh, it was that. It was in that office in Birmingham in 1940 that the Allies, broadly speaking, realized you could build a bomb, right? And Szilard did not know how to do that. He was a very brilliant person. There's no doubt about that. He's a friend of Einstein. He he was very worried. Uh, his intuition was right. That mm-hmm. it, it must be possible, so to speak. But it was Frisch and Piles who actually wrote on pretty much on the backs of envelopes how you could do it. And that's what I think has been un, uh, uh, underestimated. And to be fair to Szilard, you know, he, with uh, Fritsch and Parsi's boss, uh, Oliphant, uh, the, uh, he, he was really pushing this in the United States, right? So, uh, so, to, so all those things came together uh, with with the leading players. And as I said, the the way with which the United States run, ran with that is is awesome. Uh, when, yeah, Leo Szilard, when he got out of the bathtub, yeah. could get a lot done. He did. 
He was a very, very brilliant guy. But he, why say they were? He, you know, he was from a group of people who, you know, he, he was not the brightest of them. You had, you know, you in the same school Johnny district. Von John von Neumann. Yeah. You know, Eugene Wigner, Dirac's brother-in-law. Right, right. I mean, you know, Pugliani. You know, these, these are from. I mean, there is a good book to be written. I, I know there have there have been others, but there is a good popular book to be written about how this fluke, you know, this fluke that gave us these great Hungarian. Uh, Minds. It is quite amazing. It is absolutely yeah. amazing. Yes, that's right. Well, we'll let Hungary have the last word this All right. time. Okay, that was great. This is great to talk to you. Churchill's bomb, how the United States overtook Britain in the first nuclear arms race. If you like science, you'll love it. If you like history, you'll love it. If you like science and history, well, <laughs> Good. Graham Farmola, thanks so much. Absolutely my pleasure, Steve, as always. Well, that's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can also check out the collection of Scientific American ebooks. Of particular interest may be the recently published volume called The Changing Face of War. All the ebooks are under four bucks. They're at books.scientificamerican.com slash SA hyphen ebooks. Or just go to the website and look for ebooks. And follow us on Twitter where you get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. The old fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be free, and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age, made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us, therefore, brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour.